Well, good morning and welcome everyone. It is so good to see each and every one of you here. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for being a part of this worship celebration. Oh, wow, there is nothing like resurrection worship and singing, yeah? It was amazing. Band, thank you so much for all that you did to bring that to life. It was fun to see the kids singing and dancing over there. So, so great. And speaking of our awesome morning, like what a fun Easter video. I just wanted to thank each and every one of you who were a part of making that happen. Uh, special thanks go to Kevin Bailey, who's somewhere here, that did all of the videoing and the editing and um, just really brought that to life. So thank you so much for the gift that all of you gave. This is such a blessing for our morning. Now, the last collaborative video that we made was actually also for Easter back in 2020. We were about a month into the pandemic, and we were meeting online, and I'm reminded now of how precious it is to be with one another and how it's a gift and not to be taken for granted. So, so thank you for being here, and thank you for the gift of your presence. And thank you for being a part of a celebration this morning, because that's what this is. It's a celebration of Jesus' victory over the cross. It's a celebration that he is risen. He is risen indeed. And Christ followers around the world have been preparing our hearts for Christ's resurrection. We've been preparing ourselves throughout this season called Lent. It's a 40-day season of soul-searching and repentance that leads up to Easter, or Resurrection Sunday. The last week of Lent is Holy Week, and in it, we're invited to accompany Jesus through the last week of his life. Holy Week began on Palm Sunday, which was last Sunday. It's a day that we remember that Jesus had a triumphal entry into Jerusalem and we celebrate him as the king who would bring a new kingdom on earth. So, Holy Week began last Sunday, and it concluded yesterday, on Saturday. This is a quiet and dark day during which we are invited to keep vigil by the tomb and remember that Jesus, after being unjustly tried and convicted, was mocked and beaten and gave up his life on a cross. It's a day of sorrow and of grief, but it's also a day that we hold hope in our hearts because the story does not end there. This morning's passage picks up from this point in the narrative, this time of quiet and sorrow by the tomb. So let's make our way there together. Let's make our way to a special garden not far from the hill on which, on which Jesus was crucified. So would you please join me in turning to John chapter 20, starting with verse 1. And you're welcome to turn or tap your way there if you brought a hard copy Bible or if you have your electronic device, or feel free to follow along on the screens. Let's read. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the, stu the stone had been removed from the entrance. So it's the first day of the week. This means that Sabbath was just over. In Jesus' day, the Sabbath, which was also known as the seventh day, was observed on Saturday. Or more specifically, because time was marked from sunset to sunset, 
The Sabbath, which was 25 hours long, was observed from sunset on Friday to just after sunset on Saturday. So virtually all of Saturday's darkness has passed, and it's that moment just before Sunday's dawn. And here at Jesus' tomb, we find Mary Magdalene. Mary is from a village by the Lake of Galilee called Magdala. And she was one of several women from this region who faithfully and sacrificially supported Jesus and his disciples from the very beginning. Mary accompanied Jesus throughout his Galilean ministry and then came up with him to Jerusalem, and she remained present by Jesus' side on Calvary, keeping vigil beside him as he suffered and died on the cross. And now we find her here, still faithfully present, ready to serve Jesus in death and to do these burial preparations and finish what Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea began before the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest, marked by a significant number of restrictions, including this type of work, this burial preparation work. So here we find Mary at the tomb at her first opportunity to anoint Jesus' body. She arrives and she sees that the stone from the entrance of Jesus' tomb has been removed. She connects the dots and she assumes that Jesus' body has been taken, perhaps by grave robbers or perhaps the authorities who'd sometimes put bodies of executed criminals in group graves. Mary is filled with so much emotion that she runs quickly. She runs quickly and makes her way to a few of the disciples beside whom she'd served for so many years, to Peter, who's also known as Simon Peter, as well as to John, who's also known as the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And who, by the way, is also the author of the Gospel of John and therefore is the author of and an eyewitness to the account from our passage this morning. So... Mary runs to Peter and the other disciples, and she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. And at this news, now, Peter and the other disciple, they run. Let's check it out, starting with verse 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So... Peter and the other disciple run to the garden as fast as they can. They don't even arrive at the same time, which I find sort of fun to think about as the author chooses to mention that he gets there first. (laughs) Was humble brag a thing back then? Maybe, I don't know, I don't know. Um, Well, anyways, the other disciple arrives first and looks into the tomb, and as he does so, he sees these strips of burial cloths lying where Jesus' body was. Now, while the other disciple was there at the entrance of the tomb, looking in, then Peter, who's known to be bold and impulsive through Scripture, 
He comes right up behind him and heads straight into the tomb. And then Peter, from this closer and less obstructed vantage point, not only sees the strips of linen that had been wrapped around Jesus' body, he also sees the cloth that was wrapped around Jesus' head, lying there, separate from the linen. It's even been surmised that the linen strips retained the form of Jesus' body, regardless of the form. This is all incredibly surprising, to say the least, and unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. So this is what Peter sees. And the other disciple, what does he do next? And what does he see then? Let's continue on, starting with verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, (laughs) also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the other disciple enters the tomb, and what does he see? Well, he sees everything that Peter did, yet the other disciple sees differently. The other disciple sees differently than Peter. To convey this, the author uses two different Greek verbs for see. For Peter, back in verse 6, the author uses the word theorai. This gets at beholding or scrutinizing, or examining. Peter beholds, scrutinizes, or examines the presence and position of the linen and the headcloth when he entered the tomb. And then there's the other disciple. The author uses the word aden. He uses this word to describe his type of seeing here in verse 8. And this word gets at understanding, perceiving, or knowing. It's sort of like when we say, I see, to mean I know. Whereas Peter beholds, scrutinizes, or examines the burial cloths, the other disciple understands, perceives, or knows the significance of those burial cloths. So here we have two different people looking at the same thing but seeing differently. The other disciple he saw with knowing. He knew this wasn't a robbery site. The linens lying there, the face cloth all folded up. These were orderly, in their place, not tossed aside or crumbled. None of this adds up to a body gone missing scene. A tidy and unrushed thief did not take Jesus' body. So then what happened? Well, the other disciple saw and believed, or he knew and believed that something was up, but he didn't really understand what it was. The author tells us they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The author builds suspense here as we await the curtain to be fully drawn back and for these followers of Jesus to know that he is alive but they still don't totally get it. It's not like the other disciple or Peter were running around looking for Jesus. No, they went home. So Peter and the other disciple have taken off. But here in the garden, Mary remains. We find Mary still at the tomb and still seeking Jesus. We read, 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Mary stoops and looks into the tomb, and she looks where Jesus' body had been laid. And what does she see? In stark contrast to the set of burial clothes that Peter saw, Mary saw a set of angels Rather than seeing the cloth that had been around Jesus' head and the linen strips that had been around his body, she saw an angel sitting there where Jesus' head had been and another angel sitting at the foot of where Jesus' body was. Now angels. As we've seen in scripture, despite what Hallmark might suggest, they are not cute and they are not chubby babies, nor do they have wings. In fact, people tend to be freaked out by them. Like when the angel of the Lord visited Zechariah to let him know that he and his wife will, in their old age, bear a son. Or like the time that the angel of the Lord visited these unsuspecting shepherds at night and announced Jesus' birth. What's the first thing that the angel says to them? Do not, oh, we have, we have a volunteer from the audience. <laughs> What does he say, Isaiah? Fear not, do not be afraid. Why? Because they were afraid. But Mary's not afraid. She's so consumed with finding Jesus that even angels which struck fear into so many that not even they distract her from her laser-focused pursuit of finding her Lord. That he's missing brings her to tears. The angels ask her why she's crying, and she says, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. And then, the prayer of Mary's heart is answered. There Jesus is, right behind her. She turns around, still weeping, and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Ah, oh, the suspense. She, like the disciples who were there just before her, she sees, but she doesn't fully get it. Mary is desperate to find Jesus. She wants to find him so, so badly. But she doesn't see him. Jesus asks her, just like the angels did, why are you crying? And then he asks, who are you looking for? Mary, weeping and resolute to find her Lord, responds to Jesus, thinking he's the gardener, and says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And then Jesus says to her, Mary, Mary. God uses one word, just one word, to reveal Jesus' resurrected presence. The open tomb, the burial cloths, the angels, 
all of these things that had been beheld and scrutinized and examined and understood and perceived and known, they all point to one thing. They point to the reality of the resurrection now revealed in all of its glorious fullness. They point to the truth that Jesus is alive. Jesus says Mary's name and now, to her amazement, she recognizes the risen Lord is standing right in front of her. She knows this because Jesus says her name and because she knows Jesus' voice. Last Sunday, we saw this picture during service. Of course, it's from Disneyland, which is also known as the happiest place on earth. And it was at Disneyland about 19 years ago that the power of hearing's one name and recognizing the voice of the one calling it, that that became very real to me. Ted and I took the girls to Disneyland. It was in the summer, and it was super hot, and it was super crowded, like shoulder to shoulder crowded on Main Street. And it was there where we experienced what some would consider to be a parent's worst nightmare. For a moment, we had no idea where our child was. Dina was almost two years old then, and I, I don't know how it happened, but she was right there, right beside me, one minute, and then in a moment she wasn't. It was terrifying. I called out her name, like loud, like so, so many times. I desperately asked strangers if they'd seen her, and I continued to call out Dina's name again and again. And then, after what felt like forever, but was probably a minute or two, then my daughter emerged through the crowd, finding her way to me, her eyes wide open, with tears streaming down her face. In the chaos and cacophony of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder people on a hot summer day in Disneyland, my daughter knew my voice when I called her name. Jesus calls his own by name. He calls his faithful follower who had been with him from Galilee to Calvary to the tomb by name. And Mary recognizes his voice. Jesus tells us something about this dynamic earlier in John's Gospel, in John chapter 10, verses 2 to 3. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep listen to their shepherd's voice, and this is manifest in Jesus' first resurrected appearance. While Mary is looking for Jesus relentlessly and desperately, she doesn't recognize him by sight. She recognizes Jesus, her shepherd, by the sound of his voice. Mary recognizes Jesus not by his appearance, but by his voice. After hearing her name, Mary responds to Jesus with a name that she's used for him 
countless times. She turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher in Aramaic. Jesus not only tells us in John 10 that the shepherd calls his sheep by name, he also says that the shepherd leads their sheep. We see this play out here in the garden by the tomb. Jesus calls Mary's name and he leads her. But where? He says to Mary, who's now embracing him, to not hold on to him, but rather to go, to go and tell the disciples and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And what does Mary do? She follows the leading or the calling of her Lord and her teacher and her shepherd. We see in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary goes to the disciples again, this time neither saying that Jesus' body has been stolen nor saying that the tomb is empty. This time Mary tells the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he is alive. Jesus, the good shepherd, led Mary out to play a vital role in God's unfolding plan as she pulled back the curtain to reveal the reality of the resurrection. Now, one might wonder why the disciples didn't understand or fully know what was up much sooner. Like, why didn't they know that Jesus would rise again? Because, well, Jesus has talked about this before and plainly. For example, he said to his disciples in Matthew 17, 23, they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life. Pretty straightforward and through the front door, yeah? Well, this is because God reveals his truths according to his timing. And it wasn't time yet. The motif of misunderstanding and lack of full understanding, this runs throughout scripture. We see this play out as Jesus speaks to a crowd in his last public teaching before his crucifixion. Jesus says in John chapter 12, starting in verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Here, Jesus gets at why he would give up his life, the way he would do that, and what God would accomplish through this ultimate sacrifice. And in the verses that follow, we see there's so much that Jesus' audience doesn't understand and or so much that they didn't believe about what Jesus is saying. Here, Jesus talks of giving up his life to take on the judgment of the world. Judgment that rightfully was to come upon humanity for rebelling against their creator God as they chose to define good and evil on their own terms back in Genesis. Humans broke from the perfect union and community that they enjoyed with God and that God enjoyed with them. God cast his 
fallen, beloved creation out of the garden, imperfect beings who now could no longer be with their perfect God. But he never stopped loving them. And ever since they broke from him, he's been unfolding a plan to bring them back to himself, to draw all people back to himself by doing something that they could never do for themselves. He's been unfolding a plan to restore the perfect union and community that he and humanity enjoyed in the garden. This plan of restoration is God made flesh, descended to earth in the person of Jesus who announced, demonstrated, and ushered in a new kingdom. This plan it surprisingly and paradoxically reached its climax when Jesus was crucified and was lifted up from the earth and then died in a supreme display of God's glory. God's plan to repair the brokenness caused by humanity in the garden does not end with the cross. For in another garden, Jesus' followers discovered an empty tomb Jesus, who willingly died on a cross for the sake of the world. Jesus, who denied death and conquered that cross. This Jesus calls your name. And so, as the band returns to the stage, and as we leave this place, I invite you to listen or listen anew to his voice. Because the Good Shepherd is calling your name. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is leading you out. He is leading you out to be a part of his unfolding plan of restoration. God desires to unfold restoration within you and heal where you are broken inside. And he desires to fold restoration through you and repair relationships, broken systems, broken injustice. And he desires to unfold restoration with you, to have a restored whole relationship with you and be in community with you. He loves you so much. And so, how is Jesus leading you out? What's he saying to you? What could it look like to follow his leading? Maybe you don't fully know or understand. Or maybe it's hard to hear Jesus. That's okay. As you can see in today's passage, you're in good company. God will meet you in that. So, Keep listening. Maybe that's through prayer or reading scripture or hearing God's words from the people that he has placed in your life or something else. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, may you hear the voice of the risen Jesus Christ who loves you and leads you and calls you by name. Let's pray. 
Almighty God. Thank you for your boundless grace and mercy and love manifest through the sending of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the life that he lived and, and for the way that through it that we get to know your heart and see your kingdom. May we be a part of what you are restoring and making new. Thank you, Jesus, for your journey to the cross and for the precious, priceless gift of wholeness and restoration with God made available to us through your sacrifice. Thank you for loving us so much, Good Shepherd, and for calling us individually by name. Holy Spirit, help us hear Jesus. May we hear and be obedient to his voice. And through that, Father God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done everywhere on earth, just as it is in heaven. For it is in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <laughs>